Hello and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So you will remember if you were with us last week that we began a new series of episodes last week on the subject of what I'm going to call critical social justice. Uh, We actually released two episodes last week. The first was uh, the first episode in this new series. Uh, The second was a compilation of podcast uh, or other uh, audio versions of video uh, output that we produced last year in 2020 on the same subject, although at that time I referred to it as critical theory. If you uh, aren't sure what it is we're talking about, I encourage you to go back and take a look at those or have a listen to th- that output. But um, uh, if you are, then, well, sit right where you are or carry on doing what you're doing, and we're going to continue our exploration of this subject. Now, I mentioned last time that um, I'm going to be focusing uh, to some degree on this book by Charles Pincourt and James Lindsay, uh, which is, uh, I think, a very helpful guide to addressing the challenges that critical social justice ideology raises in the modern world in various contexts, whether in churches or in universities or in business or in the public sector or elsewhere. However, I also mentioned last week that this book has some shortcomings. It has a great many strengths, but it's uh, not written from a Christian perspective. As far as uh, I know, the authors aren't Christians. In fact, I'm pretty sure that James Lindsay's not. And the the way that uh, Charles Pincourt uh, writes, it looks like uh, he's not either. It has some useful stuff in it, but obviously it's going to have some shortcomings. And there are some significant and distinctive perspectives that we must bring to bear on this subject as Christians. And we've got to get them deeply, so to speak, ingrained in the foundation before we proceed. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to approach the rest of this material in the right way. Um, And really, there are three things I want to talk about today. Two of them are not in Pincourt at all. They're things that he's missed, I think, uh, mainly because he's not writing from a Christian perspective, so he just doesn't see these things. Pardon me. And the third one, well, what I want to do is to apply something that is in here to, in a distinctively Christian way. Um, this book, as you remember, is uh, written principally to address university contexts. And um, I, it's not its usefulness is not restricted to that, but there's some work to be done to see how its insights apply elsewhere. So that's what I want to do. So really three things to talk about today. Uh, and I want to spend the most time on the first one because it is way, way, way uh more important than anything else I can think of to say on this subject. Um, And so please uh, stick around to um, hear what I have to say on that. Um, And you could really summarize not just that, but all of what I want to say under a very simple heading, learning to love. And in fact, I think that might well be the title of this podcast. Um, So three things to talk about. And the first, this is an insight which is not really found at all in this book by Charles Pincourt and James Lindsay, but one that as Christians we really, really need to take seriously. And it is to address the whole question of what the Bible has to say about race. Much of the discussion uh, in critical social justice focuses on racial identity, as it is called. You'll recall that... Um, Uh, critical social justice ideology teaches people that their identity is defined by the groups that they're members of. And it articulates that in in terms of a whole range of polarities, male, female, gay, straight, um, cis, trans. uh, And the most dominant uh, pair of polarities in modern discussion is black, white. And uh, 
it's such a part of our way of thinking and speaking in the modern world that as Christians even, we all too readily buy into this way of thinking about people. And in my view, it has to be challenged right at the root. It is not just, in other words, that what critical social justice has to say about black and white itself is wrong. It's that the categories themselves, as they're employed in the modern world as a whole, are entirely unbiblical. And I want to demonstrate that. It might take a few minutes to do so, but I hope you'll bear with me because I think it's really, really important. Scripture does not speak of black and white races. It's as simple as that. The whole concept of race as black and white is an entirely unbiblical notion. What I want to do is to unpack for a little bit what scripture actually does say. Of course, scripture recognizes that there are different groups of peoples in the world, dif different nations, different peoples, different locations, different ge geographical regions. And scripture naturally recognizes that these different geographical regions bring with them different cultures and different traditions, like different languages and different kinds of food and different kinds of uh, ways of life that arise from the geography and other factors um, in relation to where people live. But these are not the same as what we think of in the modern world as race. In fact, if scripture says anything about all these different groups of people, it's that in all the most significant ways, they're the same. Uh, everybody is called and welcome to worship the living God. And this is an insight that's often forgotten when people turn to their Old Testaments, because it's all too easy to read that through a, a careless um, hermeneutical lens where it looks like the people with whom God is interested, the ones whom God is interested in are one particular nation, the nation of Israel. Of course, his focus centers there. But right from the beginning of Israel's life, right from the covenant with Abraham, uh, the ones who are circumcised and belong to the people of Abraham are Abraham plus 318 men who were not born in his household. And throughout the whole of the Old Testament, you have this constant focus on other nations being welcomed. In fact, um, the, whole the high point of Israel's whole history in the days of Solomon um, is that period of Israel's uh, life is characterized by the fact that the people of other nations came to worship the Lord and came to see Solomon, came to marvel at the wisdom of uh, Israel's Messiah, King um, Solomon, the, the one anointed in keeping with God's promises to his people. And uh, in fact, you could even characterize Israel's failure as a failure to be a light to the nations under the older covenants, and so to keep drawing people to the living God. To put it another way, if, if Israel had in in this hypothetical um, world that we're not now living in, if Israel had succeeded in uh, fulfilling God's calling upon them, they would have continued to do what in the end Christ has done, that is to welcome all nations to worship the living God with them. And speaking of Christ, Christ, the final faithful Israelite, is the one who has broken down forever the dividing wall between those nations, Jew and Gentile nations, that once was characteristic of Israel's life. Now, 
That's how scripture speaks. In other words, there are different peoples, there are different nations, there are different geographical regions, and all are welcome to worship the living God. And none of those scriptural distinctions corresponds with anything like what we are now so tempted to call race, certainly black and white races. I even want to use those scare quotes at that point because I hope, I hope like me, you're even uncomfortable with using the terminology of race and black and white in this kind of way because it just jars so much with a biblical way of thinking. What does scripture say about the, the differences between people with different physical characteristics? Well, it says we're all descended from Adam. We're all descended from Noah. In that sense, we're all one race. Now, Obviously, there are hereditary differences, inherited differences between uh, uh, different people. And these uh, historically have been preserved in certain populations in, in certain parts of the world because of people's geographical uh, locations. If people aren't mobile to move and just transplant themselves somewhere else completely different in the world, then hereditary traits are going to be preserved down through the generations in many different parts of the world. So eye color, hair color, height, all kinds of different physical characteristics differ regionally. If you look at the statistics, for example, it's kind of interesting to look at the statistics of the average height uh, of different uh, of people in different regions of the world. There's actually quite a substantial difference, eight or eight or nine inches between the average height of people in the Balkan regions and Bosnia and Montenegro and the Dinaric Alps and uh, the Netherlands and Scandinavia, where people tend to be, the average male height is about six foot one, six foot, six and a half inch, um, six foot and half an inch, that kind of height, to other places where the average height is much lower, like Nepal or the Philippines, where it's might be five foot four, five foot four and a half. And those are obviously hereditary differences. You also get overlaid on top of that other differences like between North and South Korea, where they were basically uh, one nation until about 1945. But now there's a height difference of one or two inches because of differences in nutrition between the North and the South. That's a whole different story. But look, we don't make out that the hereditary difference between people of different height is theologically significant. We don't make out that the differences that are inherited between people of different hair color or different eye color are theologically significant or socially significant in any way. And so we have to absolutely dispense for good and all with this ridiculous and unbiblical notion that differences between people of different skin tone are theologically significant. There is no meaningful difference in biblical terms between people of lighter or darker skin tone. And the whole modern way of thinking about this is therefore polluted with a deeply unbiblical set of assumptions. The categorization of different people as black and white has to be rejected. And the, the difficult thing is we're kind of stuck with a culture in which it's not rejected and we, we feel it necessary to use that language in order to address problems that we see in the world around us and problems of um, tension between different groups of people. And so what I'm, what I'm not saying is, okay, we must never use the word race or uh, the word racism or the terms black and white in that sense. But here's the key thing. When we do do so, 
we must remain conscious that it's a paradigm that we have to reject. And we're talking about it because we're trying to articulate what's wrong, not just with how the different groups relate to each other, but what's wrong with the paradigm in itself. To say it again, the categorization of people according to skin tone has to be rejected. Uh, it, I can't remember who put it like this. Um, what, what we want is a world in which the color of somebody's skin makes about as much difference to how we treat them as the color of their hair or the color of their eyes, which is to say no difference at all. From a biblical standpoint, all humanity is united in one race, all the offspring of Adam, all the offspring of Noah, all fallen in Adam, all needing to be redeemed in Christ, and all welcome in one church under one Lord Jesus Christ, whatever different hereditary characteristics we may possess. Now, I've pressed that point because I think it's so important, and it connects to contemporary categorizations and contemporary debates because it coincides roughly with what has come to be known as the doctrine of color blindness. Um, it, it's, it received probably its most well-known expression on the lips of Martin Luther King uh, in his famous I Have a Dream speech. Remember when he, probably, some of you probably memorized this speech. Uh, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged by, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's the doctrine of color blindness. It's a, a way of life in which we treat people as people and we reject this artificial and unbiblical way of categorizing people as black and white. And certainly the different treatment of them on that basis. Now, it won't be any surprise to you then that this doctrine of color blindness is actually opposed very strongly by advocates of critical social justice. And it's one of the things that it's worth bearing in mind, and we, we may come back to this as we move forward in this series. Um, the uh, contemporary critical social justice advocates are not the legitimate heirs of the great civil rights movements of the 50s, 60s, 70s um, in America and elsewhere. They're not because their attitude to these differences is absolutely foundationally different. Whereas Martin Luther King and those like him who campaigned so um, vociferously and so well and at such cost to their own lives for equality, what they wanted was for there to be no difference in the way people were treated. What contemporary advocates of critical social justice want is absolutely there should be a difference in the way people are treated. Uh, and so it's important uh, when we're engaging with advocates of critical social justice, to insist that it is we who want to have a world in which people are not judged by the colour of their skin, where skin tone makes just no difference. It's like as much difference as if I go on a holiday and come back two shades more brown, which I don't. I tend to come back two shades more red or pink because, well, it's just the biology that I'm blessed with, I guess. But that doesn't make any difference to my moral status. It doesn't make any difference to my social um, standing. It doesn't make any difference to anything at all, whether or not I've got a suntan. And that's how significant skin tone should be in other domains as well. So how does this land then in the church? Well, it lands a little like this. This goal of colour blindness 
is probably harder for us to attain than we realise. Leave aside the claims of critical social justice advocates. Leave aside all that. And let's just think for a second about ourselves as individuals, as families, as Christians, as churches. How good are we at actually embracing this biblical outlook on black stroke white? Again, scare quotes. I don't want to use the words. How good are we at living out a doctrine of colorblindness? How good are we at, here's the best way of putting it, how good are we at reflecting in our daily lives and the way we talk to one another, the way we talk about one another, the way we relate to each other? The Bible's teaching that these hereditary differences of appearance should make and do make no difference to what a person is. You wouldn't treat people differently because of their height. You wouldn't um, discriminate in any way against somebody who had green eyes as opposed to blue eyes or brown eyes or ginger hair as opposed to dark or blonde hair. Why would you? We wouldn't do anything like that. That'd be ridiculous. So why on earth? Well, do we? How good are we actually at transcending the differences which our culture has said are so significant? It is not always so obvious that we've done a great job of this. And I'm not in a position here where I can uh, make specific claims about you uh, or about anybody else. But what I want to do is to appeal to you to reflect on how good we are, how good you are at actually manifesting in your daily life a biblical colorblindness. That is uh, the biblical view that these differences of appearance are inconsequential and should be inconsequential in how we treat one another. In fact, uh, we can go further than that. Bear with me a second, coffee time. We can go further than that. Um, it's not just that the failure to do this would be a moral failing on our part. Um, that's the most serious um, consequence of it. It's also the case that nothing that we learn from Pincor or Lindsay or that you might learn from me or anybody else about how to deal with the critical social justice movement will have any effect, certainly any positive effect, on our ability to engage in these issues if we're not actually uh, committed to and practicing treating people with love, actually treating everybody with grace, actually treating everybody equally, actually treating people with uh, love and kindness regardless of their appearance. If we're not treating people with absolute dignity, whatever they look like, then we are not going to make any progress in addressing the critical social justice lobby, and we're actually sinning against God. Um, it's, it would be ironic, wouldn't it, if, if what happened in the Christian church is that the, um, the social justice movement became a convenient target for our criticism so that we could carry on not being colorblind in that biblical sense. If we actually have racist attitudes, if we actually do discriminate on the basis of people's appearance, skin tone, and what we, what we end up doing is using this ideology, or rather using criticisms 
of this ideology as a as a convenient thing to talk about so that we can continue to feel self-righteous because while we're not critical social justice advocates we're opposed to it, where we actually carry on um, categorizing people in this basic old-fashioned racist way that would be reprehensible um, to put it another way um, wokeness is a false gospel a number of writers have said that a number of christian writers have said that um, the critical social justice movement is a false gospel, but we cannot oppose a false gospel if we're not living out the true gospel. And the true gospel of Christ requires us to treat everybody, regardless of their appearance, with grace and dignity as those who are created in the image of God and redeemed, uh, or if they're not believers yet, uh, in need of being redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just in case you wanted proof that this could be a problem in our churches, it has been a problem in the past, obviously. In fact, it's even, um, it's even a problem in some biblical contexts. You see this kind of prejudice on the basis of people's appearance in the Bible. Remember Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, if you've not uh, got your Bibles, don't worry, I'll read it to you. Um, you remember uh, this is during the, the period of Israel's wandering in the wilderness where various people are complaining about Mo, uh, complaining against Moses and against the Lord because of the food and because of a whole bunch of other things. And in Numbers chapter 12, we read, quote, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Why do they speak against him? Well, quote, because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And just think about that for a second. His own brother and sister displaying the kind of crass, morally bankrupt prejudice, speaking against Moses because he'd married a Cushite. Do we, do we really need to say that that's a fine thing to do? Do we really need to say that there's nothing wrong with an Israelite marrying a Cushite? Like, is that actually something that we need to be reminded of? Tragically, it is possible that it is. And so um, let's remind ourselves of it. Now, there is absolutely nothing bad to be said about Moses marrying a Cushite or uh, an Englishman like myself marrying a half Austrian like my wife, Nicole. Or if we may permit ourselves once again to feel the discomfort of using the terminology, which is all around us, there is obviously, like, do we need to say there's there's obviously nothing wrong with a black person marrying a white person. Like if we have to actually say that to ourselves, then maybe we just need to say it to ourselves. And the reason there's nothing wrong is because there's no difference between that pe those people that makes any difference to how they should relate to each other. It's like saying, is there anything wrong with a tall person marrying a short person? Like, obviously not. And so why would we need to be reminded of this? And yet it's really remarkable, isn't it, that Aaron, Aaron, the great high priest of Israel, could do this. He could speak against Moses, his brother, because of the appearance of the person whom he'd married. Uh, by the way, it is obvious that it's appearance that's in view here and not the nationality or background, uh, the ethnic background of um, the person whom Moses had married. And if you think about it for two seconds, you'll realize why. 
Uh, Moses had one wife. We know that because um, having multiple wives is extremely significant in scripture. And so it's the sort of thing that would be noted, especially given the book of Genesis, where people's multiple wives are noted in great detail. And we know who Moses' wife was. She was uh, named Zipporah. He uh, met and married her in Exodus chapter 2. And we know where she's from. She's from Midian, which is where Moses met her, of course. Now, Midian is uh, south of Israel and to the east of the Gulf of Aqaba in what is now uh, the very, very northwest tip of Saudi Arabia. And Cush is nowhere near Midian. Cush is in Africa. It's a, a, an ancient term for the region which is south of Egypt. Um, it's in what we now know as northern Sudan, perhaps overlaps with Eritrea and portions of northern Ethiopia. It's about a thousand miles land journey from Midian. So what on earth are Moses and Aaron doing referring to Zipporah as a Cushite? When she's not a Cushite at all, she's a Midianite. And then you think about it for a second. What is it that they're seeing when they look at their brother's wife? They're seeing not who she is. They're seeing her skin color, her skin tone. People from Midian had slightly darker skin tone than Israelites. We can uh, infer that from where they were from and uh, the inhabitants of uh, those regions in the past and even today. People from Cush had a substantially and still have a substantially darker skin tone than um, people from uh, descended from Abraham and uh, his household and the Israelites with Moses. So what's happening? Well, Moses, brother and sister, are looking at his wife and seeing somebody who has a skin tone that is darker than theirs. And they're employing the term which describes somebody who has an even darker skin tone or the region where they might come from as a kind of insult. It is the most it's hard to imagine a more ungodly, graceless, just downright wicked way of speaking about a person. It calculated to cause personal hurt. Uh, and it's, it's remarkable. This is when you see Moses' astonishing meekness, because throughout that whole exchange, he says nothing at all, except when he finally pipes up 10 verses later to pray for his sister's uh, leprosy, that she'd be healed. Um, but it is a reprehensible scene in which two uh, biblical characters who, um, well, we, we, we ought to be able to hold them up as biblical hero and heroine, Aaron and, and Miriam, uh, descend to about the lowest depths of prejudice recorded uh, anywhere in the ancient world, never mind in the scriptures. It is outrageous. And the tragedy is that attitudes like that still exist today. So do we need to say it again? Maybe we do. Uh, the color of somebody's skin should make about as much difference to how we treat them as the color of their eyes. And if that's not the case for us, then really away with all the complex stuff that we might be getting into in the coming weeks about how to handle critical social justice ideology. It is, in, in fact, if, if we do still have those attitudes that were um, found in Moses 
brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, in Numbers 12. If we still have those attitudes in our hearts and in our lives and in our churches, Lord, preserve us, then I would go so far as to say that the critical social justice movement is probably God's judgment upon us for those attitudes. We deserve everything we suffer at the hands of this movement if we still harbour those prejudices based upon how people have been made by the living God. Okay, so hopefully um, that's something that we'll be able to um, keep in our minds. And uh, when we speak of black and white, as we will have to from time to time in addressing the the malaise in the culture around us, um, let us not do so from a position of granting to that uh, dichotomy any significance at all, and much less let us not do so from a position of actual prejudice. Okay, more briefly, let's talk about the second and the third things um, that I think uh, will be helpful for us to get um, uh, through and discussed today. Uh, the second thing I want to highlight is another uh, point not made in um, uh, the book that well, we're supposed to be working through, um, a point that's not made here, but I think it's really, really important. And it's to do with how the critical social justice movement uh, thinks of those different categories. You recall, let me say it again, that um, the CSJ movement teaches people to think of their identity as constituted by their membership of one or more oppressor or oppressed groups along various um, uh, polarities. For example, uh, black or white, male or female, gay or straight. Now, just think of those three polarities for a second. Coffee time, excuse me. What's distinctive about the critical social justice movement at this point is that all those three uh, descriptions of people are treated as though they had the same or, or almost exactly the same significance. So in each pair, there's an oppressed and an oppressor group, and your moral virtue increases in proportion to your membership of oppressed groups, and so on and so forth. But now just try and think of those categories for a second from a biblical standpoint. What significance, according to the Bible, do those different uh, bi uh, bipolar distinctions have? Well, we've already talked about the distinction, the significance of the skin tone uh, distinction. It has no significance at all. Um, black white is inconsequential. Skin tone is absolutely insignificant in every way, in biblical terms. Well, what about male female? Well, male female is actually a really significant um, uh, difference between people. It makes a vast difference to uh, people's potential callings in life. It does make a difference, actually, to what we expect people to do and, to a certain extent, how we treat people. Now, we treat people still with dignity and love and kindness, regardless of whether they're male or female. We want to do that, right? But um, the way that you show love to another man, if you're a man, say, is different from how you show love to another woman. There's a, uh, a difference in uh, how that relationship should be configured. And if, this doesn't need spelling out, obviously it is. And obviously there are different roles in churches between uh, distributed between men and women. Um, uh, there are certain things that women can do because of their biology that men can't do. There are certain things that men are called to do for women that women are not called to do for men and for the church and so on and so forth. In other words, 
you've got some category distinctions which are absolutely in, inconsequential, some which are extremely consequential, male, female, and we ought to be ready to recognize the significance of that category. And then you've got other categories, like let's say um, gay, straight, which represent not how we're made, but moral choices. And the danger of the critical social justice movement, and even of critics of it, like Pincourt and Lindsay at this point, is that we just follow them in treating these two, or all these different categories in the same kind of way. They're not the same. So to summarize again, um, what should be in our minds here as Christians? Well, we're called to love God and to love our neighbor. And the way we love uh, people of different skin tone has to be to make that skin tone absolutely inconsequential to how we treat them. The way that we love men and the way we love women is going to be markedly different in different scenarios and different circumstances and what we, how we relate to them, the things that we ask of them and so on and so forth. And the way that we love people who've made different moral choices, particularly, let's pick up this one, about um, a homosexual lifestyle, somebody who's uh, tempted in that way and attracted in that way. Well, obviously, we still love people, but we do so in a different way from how we would love somebody um, who is uh, not uh, attracted to members of the same sex. So can you see what's important here? Um, under the heading of learning to love, we need to go one step further than the secular uh, critics of the social justice movement in making these finer grained distinctions between the categories that the critical social justice movement uh, articulates. And we need to learn to love people wisely, as scripture uh, urges us to do. So those are two things that I think, um, uh, with respect and, and not meaning to be overcritical or expect too much of it, um, this book by Pincourt and Lindsay um, doesn't do a great job of articulating. But um, as we finish, and just five, ten minutes perhaps on this, I do want to highlight one thing that it does an excellent job of highlighting. And this relates to the taxonomy of different participants in what we might call the woke movement or participants in the debates about the woke movement. Um, we're on um, page, well, 10 through 14. And here, uh, Pincourt and Lindsay helpfully articulate uh, some differences between the different kinds of people that we might meet in the course of, um, pardon me, wrestling with this ideology and its uh, impact in the world. I'm going to read a couple of sections uh, just to introduce you to what uh, they have to say about two of these um, kinds of participants. And then I'm going to highlight why this, this distinction is really significant for us in relationships with our families, relationships at work, and especially relationships in our churches. Lindsay and Pincourt distinguish between people they call the woke and people they call the woke proximate. Let me read a paragraph or two from this, which will be more or less self-explanatory, then I'll um, make a few comments on it. The woke, on page 11, section 1.6.1, the woke are people who are conscious of the critical social justice perspective and who adhere to it. That they adhere to it is to say also that they agree with it. As such, this is a three-dimensional definition with the dimensions being knowledge or consciousness of, adherence to, and agreement with the critical social justice perspective. 
In other words, somebody who they describe as woke, and that's not intended to be an insult, that's just intended to be a, a quick and easy way of saying advocate or proponent of the critical social justice stance. Okay. So somebody they describe as woke, it's not just that they have um, some general uh, sense of where this movement is going. They have some level of understanding of why it's going in that direction. Uh, they advocate for it because they understand at some level its claims and its background and the details of the ideology, the kind of details that I've highlighted in the first podcast in this series uh, and actually in the uh, edited uh, agglomeration of all the material from the last from last year. So just look back at the last two episodes uh, on the podcast and you'll see what I mean. Now, they then distinguish those people from people they call the woke proximate. Let me read what they have to say about these people. The woke proximate are people not trained in or familiar with critical social justice theory. That's vital, a vital distinction. Some are completely unaware of it, while others may know that it exists but not know very much more than that. While the woke proximate are not knowledgeable about critical social justice, they do adhere to and agree with the perspective, or at least with its prescriptions. The woke proximate will agree broadly, for example, with, quote, diversity, equity, and inclusion, unquote, initiatives such as affirmative action and reparations. But here's the crucial distinction. Somebody who is woke will agree with those things and will have some grasp on the historical and philosophical background that is the basis of those claims. Somebody who is merely woke proximate will agree with diversity, equity, and inclusion for the same reason that all of us sometimes find ourselves swept along with things that we don't fully understand. Those things sound good. And the critical mistake we have to avoid is the lazy and careless and uncharitable and actually really destructive assumption that somebody who speaks about diversity or equity or inclusion or justice or even reparations, in other words, somebody who speaks the language of wokeness, we must avoid the lazy assumption that somebody who uses those termino that terminology is a fully sold-out postmodern neo-Marxist. The strong likelihood is that they're not. For the simple reason, it, there are far, far, far more people in the world who have not read Foucault and Derrida and Marx and all of the cavalcade of recent uh, um, uh, proponents of critical social justice theory. There are far more people in the world who've not read all that stuff than people who have. Most of the people who we meet, just statistically, and certainly in Pincourt and Lindsay's experience, even people who speak the language of wokeness or diversity, equity, and inclusion, and everything else, have no idea, really, what they're saying. And the danger we must avoid is treating people who are just swept along by the vocabulary, the terminology, as though they've bought fully into the movement. So, what do we do then? How do we make those distinctions? Well, one way, actually, is to talk and seek to understand where it is that people are coming from. What are their concerns? And as you're talking to people, this might be the kind of thing that you do with, um, let's say, somebody in your family. Remember your family who's just gone away to college, come back after a term, and is now talking in terms of 
using all these words that you had only previously heard on this podcast, and now they're home at Christmas and they're, they're speaking like a, a woke activist. Well, pause for one second. Are they a woke activist or have they just been swept along by the, the rhetoric that they've heard? How could you tell the difference? Well, you could ask the kinds of diagnostic questions that we're thinking about before. Somebody is concerned for what they call racial justice. Well, how about asking, uh, are you looking for a world in which people are judged not by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character? And that crucially distinguishes between people who are woke proximate and fully sold out woke, read all the stuff, read Marx, read Foucault, everything else, and actually are seeking to propound the, the whole package in whatever domain they happen to find themselves in. It will be tragic if the way that we dealt with people, especially people who we know well enough to be able to shape and influence and talk with, that if, it would be tragic if the effect of our conversations with them was actually to ingrain them in a woke stance by being aggressive towards them in the kind of way that's likely to make them retreat from us to uh, the people who they are, are growing to trust, who they've heard this stuff from, who may well be themselves woke uh, proper, woke activists, rather than simply swept along by the tide of all this verbiage that sounds so impressive. Um, what kind of scenarios are you going to find yourself in? You, you might find this in churches. You might find um, uh, members of your church or your Bible study group uh, using terminology that sounds like oh my goodness, Jenny's gone woke, or oh my goodness, Dave's gone woke. Well, before we leap to that conclusion, before we do that, patience, patience, patience. Don't force them down that trajectory by treating them as though they've already got there. Crucially, uh, think of James 5, whoever turns back a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Um, and that's not even to say this person is um, sinful at this point. It may just be that they're completely confused and they've been, um, their thinking has been hijacked by the Trojan horse kind of terminology that um, woke publications and advocates tend to use. I mean, for, for goodness sake, who's not, who doesn't want diversity, equity, and inclusion? Those things sound so wonderful. And it's how uh, wokeness gathers supporters by using language in a way that hoodwinks unsuspecting and perhaps slightly naive people into thinking that what they're buying into is something good, whereas in fact it's completely toxic. People might even think that this is a necessary implication of our Christian faith to seek to be inclusive. And one of the crucial things that we can do actually at this point is to talk to people, uh, to not leap to the conclusion that they're the, really the devil incarnate and they're just hiding their two horns under their baseball cap. Um, and to seek to educate them. I have a strong suspicion, and when I say educate, I mean graciously talk with them. I'm using the term not in the sense of to be patronizing. Here, you need me to educate you. That's not what I mean. I have a strong suspicion that if uh, the people who, uh, if all the people who use the language of diversity, equity, inclusion really understood where it came from, uh, fewer of them will be so keen on it. And so one of the challenges for us is to love people and to, um, uh, cause them to continue to trust us or to um, uh, engender the kind of trustworthiness that makes it possible for us to show them how 
this movement has developed, what its origins are. And that would mean that many people who have been sucked in by these unbiblical definitions of justice and equity and inclusion and diversity would then be able to recognise what's wrong, wrong with them and start to pursue the, re, the biblical real thing rather than the critical social justice twisted version. Okay, so that's something that I think this book does well. And um, the, the section begins on page 10, goes through to page 14. Um, so thank you to Pincourt and Lindsay for highlighting that. It's something obviously which is a biblical principle to listen to what people have to say, to seek to persuade, to talk with grace and love and to show that kind of patience and so on. And if we can't do it here, if we can't be gracious to the people that we know and love, people in our families, people in our churches, then we really are in a pile of trouble and we probably have been for some time. And again, nothing that we talk about here will be able to help us. All right, I think that will do for now. We've got through a fair amount of stuff. We're going to come back next week and make some more progress through this book and, um, and pick up some of the uh, things that it's got to say. But just to um, restate um, briefly where we've come from, this taxonomy of viewpoints is right here. It's very helpful. Uh, but what they don't talk about is the uh, danger of conflating the uh, categories and making it look like um, uh, male, female, black, white, gay, straight, all to be treated the same. That's a mistake. And as Christians, we need to think differently about those different um, categories. And crucially, the one category which is most uh, hot in the news uh, at the moment and has been for a few years, um, the racial, quote unquote, category, we have to deal with by highlighting scriptures teaching that in biblical terms, there just is no such thing. And that that distinction of skin tone is as meaningless as the distinction of eye colour. If we can learn to treat people like that, so that we treat all people, regardless of what they look like, with dignity and love as image bearers of God, and needing the renewal that is only found in Christ, then we have some hope of being able to deploy some of the practical steps in this book in a way which would be useful. Okay. The Lord bless you. I hope it's been helpful. And we'll be back in a week for the next episode. But for now, take care. God bless. And bye for now. Mm -hmm.